Sometimes we hear people quote things and they say, the Bible says, and then they give some quote, and sometimes they're right, and sometimes they aren't. I mean, even if you've been a Christ follower for years, you may have some things that you believe are in the Bible that actually aren't. Let me give you a quick test of your Bible knowledge. And so I'm not going to embarrass you by making you raise your hands one way or the other, but would you just take out a piece of paper and jot down a T for true if you think this is in the Bible and an F for false if you don't think it's in the Bible. Let me give you a few. First one, Adam and Eve took a bite of an apple in the Garden of Eden. True or false? In the Bible, not in the Bible. Go ahead, make a choice. Got it? That's false. We do not know what kind of fruit it was. We don't know that it was an apple. Here's the next one. Three wise men visited Jesus after his birth. True or false? In the Bible, not in the Bible. Well, that one's false. We don't know how many wise men there were. We know that there were three gifts, but we don't know how many there were. Next one, a whale swallowed Jonah. True or false? Well, false. It might have been a whale, but the Bible says it was just a great fish. Next one, St. Peter is at the gate of heaven. True or false? In the Bible, not in the Bible. Got it? There's nowhere in the Bible that it says that. <laughs> that one's false. Okay, another one. Angels sang glory to God in the highest to the shepherds while announcing Jesus' birth. True or false? Got it? Well, I hate to burst your bubble if you love music, but the Scripture says there was a great company of angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. They were saying it. They apparently weren't singing it. One more. Baseball is mentioned in the Bible. Well, that one's true. Genesis 1-1 says, in the big inning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I hope you had some fun with that, but we're starting a new series called Actually, That's Not in the Bible, and we'll be looking at common things that most people think are in the Bible but really aren't. Today, we'll talk about the common phrase, God helps those who help themselves, and um, here's other messages in the series. Next week, we'll talk about love the sinner, hate the sin. Then the week after that, we'll talk about if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And then we'll end the series with to thine own self be true. Now, there are several more that we could do, but we may come back with a part two of this, but these are the four we'll do this time. And our purpose isn't to embarrass you if you thought that these things were in the Bible, uh, nor is our purpose just to make you smarter about what is and what isn't in the Bible. Our real purpose is to help you know God's heart better on these four subjects and to hopefully comfort you in some areas and challenge you to grow in other areas. So as we begin this series, let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for communicating to us 
through your word, through the Bible. And Father, we pray that in this series, you will just help us as we examine these things to know your heart. We want to understand your heart and we want to become more like you as we study the truth of Scripture. And so, Father, as we open your word, would you just open us to what you want to say to us today? For it's in Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the first time you heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves? I'm pretty sure I heard it from my grandfather for the first time. My dad may have said it also, and I don't think either one of them told me that it was in the Bible. I think I just kind of assumed that. And I grew up in a family that was really into taking personal responsibility. And I also remember hearing sermons in church that talked about, well, this is God's part, but this is our part. God does this, but then we have to do this. And uh, there was a whole lot of talk about two different parts. And in my early years, I really did think that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, was in the Bible. And I wasn't alone. In a nationwide poll uh, conducted by Barna Research Institute, 82% of Americans said they believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is a direct quote from the Bible. A popular host of a show that indicated their show was free from spin was interviewing a pastor of the Fifth Avenue or Fifth Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. And that church has an active ministry to help homeless people. And during the interview, the host told the pastor, quote, Jesus would have demanded that the homeless people shape themselves up or else. Because we all know the passage, the Lord helps those who help themselves, end quote. So with that statement, the host revealed that he certainly is no theologian. God helps those who help themselves isn't in the Bible, but it certainly sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? So where does this idea come from? Well, some say it came from Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, and, uh, but Franklin adapted it from another source. Actually, this saying comes from Aesop's Fables. The story goes like this. A wagoneer was driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. He came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway into the mire, and the more the horses pulled, the deeper the wheels sank. So uh, the wagoneer threw down his whip and he knelt down and he prayed to Hercules the strong. Oh, Hercules, help me in this hour of distress. But Hercules appeared to him and said, man, don't sprawl there. Get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them who help themselves. So you know what this tells us? One of the most popular religious phrases in America isn't biblical, it's pagan. It's pagan. So let's spend a little time examining it. Now first, I want you to see the sliver of truth. And here's the sliver of truth. God wants us to take action. 
And we will find at least a little truth in each of the phrases that we use for this message series. And this one is no exception. It is true that God wants us to take some responsibility and to take action in our lives. For an example, uh, what should you do when you need a job so that you can feed your family? Well, of course you should pray. Ask God to guide you to a job, to give you a job, and to lead you. But when you have finished the prayer, you shouldn't just go sit by the phone and wait for someone to call you and offer you a job. Don't do anything until you pray, but then get your resume ready. Go uh, on some online job sites and make some calls or knock on some doors, fill out some applications, go to some interviews. Uh, doing these things allows God to answer, to, to work and to answer your prayers. Now, while I do believe that God's help comes with no strings attached, I do believe that God does not call us to simply sit around and wait on him to do a miracle. He wants us to take action, to accept some responsibility for what happens to ourselves. Now, Paul had spent a very short time in the city of Thessalonica. Some think that he spent maybe three weeks there. And while he was there, he taught the people, he taught them about the fact that Jesus was going to come again. And then he left town, and apparently something began to happen. Some of the people really believed that Jesus was going to come again. So what they did was they quit their jobs, and they would spend all day sitting on a mountainside or on a hillside there, just praying and waiting for Jesus to come back again. And they sat there every day, and they prayed every day, and they waited for Jesus every day. But then at mealtime, they got hungry. So they just kind of showed up at someone's house, somebody who was working's house, and expected to be fed. And this was creating problems in town. Here's what Paul wrote to correct this problem in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When we were with you, we gave you this rule, anyone who refuses to work should not eat. We hear that some people in your group refuse to work. They do nothing but busy themselves in other people's lives. We command those people and beg them in the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and to earn their own food. Here's another verse that teaches us to take action. This one has been used by parents of teenagers for years. It says this, go watch the ants, you lazy person. Watch what they will do and be wise. Ants have no commander, no leader or ruler, but they store up food in the summer and they gather their supplies at harvest. How long will you lie there, you lazy person? When will you get up from sleeping? Now, a children's teacher was using this verse in kids' ministry one day, and she said, boys and girls, every day the little ant gets up and goes to work. Every day the little ant works hard, and in the end, what happens to the ant? And Johnny raised his hand and said, he gets stepped on? Well, that happens too when you get up and go to work sometimes, doesn't it? But you know, here's the warning about this sliver of truth that God wants us to take action. In this context, when people say God helps those who help themselves, it is often not said with kindness. It's often not said with concern. It's said to correct someone else who 
you think ought to get back to work or it's set as an excuse for not helping someone who seems to have a financial need. And they quote this, God helps those who help themselves smugly as if it's in scripture while ignoring and overlooking what the Bible does say about helping people in need and giving to those who ask. So there's a sliver of truth in this, but now I want to point out the total lie. Here's the total lie. Self-help is the best help. Self-help is the best help. This statement is a dangerous lie because it promotes the value of self-help. And some say that this whole self-help movement began in 1967 when Thomas Harris wrote the book, I'm Okay, You're Okay. And today, every bookstore or online book distributor has a large section devoted to self-help or self-improvement books. And there you will find hundreds of titles of books devoted to helping people help themselves. I browsed Amazon for titles of self-help books this week, and you can find titles like these, Seven Steps to Inner Power, How to Break Through to Awesome. Here's another one. Twelve Rules for Life, an Antidote for Chaos. Our moms would have liked this one. Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. <laughs> Making Your Bed Can Change the World. Who knew that? Next one, 10 Stupid Things Women Do to Mess Up Their Lives. And I like this one, Try Plato, Not Prozac. And there were a lot of other really catchy titles, some of which I couldn't use because of the profanity that they used in the title. But those are some, some self-help books. And I also came across a humorous list of self-help book titles. Here's one, Chickenless Soup for the Vegetarian Soul. <laughs> I like this one, 7,000 Habits of Highly Compulsive People. Here's one, stupidity for dummies. I'm okay, but you're in big trouble. <laughs> this one is a real book. Do-it-yourself coffins for pets and people. Okay. Here's another one. How to lose five pounds in six years. <laughs> and then the last one. How to rip people off by writing self-help books. Self-help books and seminars are designed to give people more self-assurance, more self-confidence. And while those are helpful traits to possess in business, and while they're helpful traits to possess in sports, when it comes to your relationship with God, self-reliance leads to self-sufficiency, and it can lead you away from seeking after God. If you believe God helps those who help themselves, then you probably have convinced yourself that you can handle handle most situations on your own. That, and that way you only have to bother God when you face really tough situations. But God isn't looking for people who are self-reliant. He's not looking for people like that. Look at what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17. This is what the Lord says. 
Cursed is the strong one who depends on mere humans, who thinks he can make it on muscle alone and sets God aside as dead weight. God helps those who help themselves is a lie that may lead someone to think that they don't need God. As a matter of fact, it may lead people to think that maybe God needs my help instead of me needing his help. And this gets us into trouble all the time. One of the biblical examples of someone who believed that God helped those who helped themselves is found in the book of Genesis. God had promised a childless couple, Abraham and Sarah, that they would have a son and that a great family of descendants would result from the birth of their son. And now they weren't young. They weren't young when God first made this promise to them. Uh, Abraham was probably in his 80s and Sarah in her 70s. And things didn't happen as quickly as they thought that they would. So Sarah was unable to get pregnant. And when she was unable to get pregnant, she decided to take matters into her own hands. She decided God needed a little help. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? And so she came up with this scheme to produce a son. And you can read all about it in Genesis chapter 16 later. But Sarah tells Abraham to sleep with, his, with her young slave girl. And she says, maybe God will give us a son through her. So Abraham, I want you to sleep with her. And Abraham being a obedient husband does what his wife suggests. Now, the slave girl, Hagar, apparently didn't have much of a choice in this matter. And when she becomes pregnant by Abraham, she despises Sarah. She hates Sarah. And the son born to Hagar was named Ishmael. And then 13 years later, when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90, Sarah gives birth to a son, and they name him Isaac. Now, to make a long story short, Ishmael became the father of all Arab people. The Arab Muslims trace their uh, lineage back to Abraham through Ishmael, and the Jewish people trace their lineage back to Abraham through Isaac. And so much of the warfare and killing between Jewish people and Arab people today can be traced directly back to a bad decision that Sarah made almost 4,000 years ago when she decided God helps those who help themselves. But you might be thinking, Steve, self-confidence and self-reliance, that's not that big of a problem. I mean, aren't those positive traits well, here are two spiritual problems that come from self-reliance. The first is this, self-reliance leads to arrogance. It leads to arrogance. When you begin to believe that you can take care of yourself and you rely on yourself, you begin to think that you don't need anyone, that you don't need anything. And you may come to the point where you arrogantly begin to believe that you don't even need God. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 8. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. 
Sometimes we begin to overlook the fact that God gave us intelligence. God gave us skill. God gave us the natural resources of this world that we use to produce the good things that we have. God gave us life and health and everything that is good. And what's more, God doesn't like it when we become arrogant. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. The scriptures say, God opposes proud people, but he helps everyone who is humble. Be humble in the presence of God's mighty power, and he will honor you when the time comes. God honors humility, not arrogant pride. Secondly, self-reliance leads to a lack of prayer. It leads to a lack of prayer. When I think that I can do it myself, I spend my time strategizing. I spend my time planning instead of praying. And if I think God helps those who help themselves, I am so busy helping myself that I forget to consult God. Now, because I grew up believing that God helps those who help themselves and that we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, I have struggled with this one for years. I mean, I often... I often give God vacations. You ever do that? A problem comes up, a situation comes up, and I think, I've got this one. I can handle this. You know, God, you just take a day off. You just rest. Just relax a little bit because I can handle this situation. And every time, every time, I mess it up. Every time the problem that I think I can handle gets bigger. And here's the ironic thing. Sometimes when it gets bigger, you know who I blame? God. God who I sent on vacation for that situation. Let me remind you what James says about this. You do not get what you want because you do not ask God. Or when you ask You do not receive because the reason you ask is wrong. You want things so that you can use them for your own pleasure. It's an interesting process to go through sometime. Look at your prayer list and just ask yourself, am I asking this for me or because this will benefit God's kingdom? Is this something I want for my own pleasure or is this something God would want? When we finally realize we need God, that we need his help, that we need his power, that we don't have what we don't want because we don't ask God. And even when we do ask, we ask God for the wrong reasons. And and when we don't ask God, we don't ask because we think we're self-reliant. We think we're self-reliant. The character who played C.S. Lewis in the movie Shadowlands said a marvelous thing about prayer. Now, I say it that way because we can't actually find anywhere where C.S. Lewis said it or where C.S. Lewis wrote this. It's often attributed to him because his character in this movie said it. I hope he said it because it's a great quote. Here, Here it is. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. You see, when I pray, it's not changing God's mind, it's not changing God's direction. What it's doing is changing me. It's me saying, God, I need you. I need you in this. 
So it is a total lie to believe that self-help is the best help. And that's what we tend to believe when we say God helps those who help themselves. Well, we'd better not end without dealing with the truth. Here's the truth. It's the comforting truth is this. God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. Now, Paul was an apostle and a follower of Jesus, and he started many churches, and he wrote 13 books of the New Testament, and he did really great things for God, and he clearly did not believe that God helps those who help themselves. Look at what he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I begged the Lord three times to take this problem away from me, but he said to me, my grace is enough for you. When you are weak, my power is made perfect in you. So I am very happy to brag about my weaknesses. Then Christ's power can live in me. I said this is a comforting truth. Here's why I think it's a comforting truth. He helps the helpless and I'm helpless. It's a comforting truth because I'm helpless and he helps the helpless. I'm weak and he is strong. I'm a mess every day. I mess up something every day and still he works in me. Still he works through me. And when people see good things come out of my life, uh, they know that it can't be me. They know that I'm not that good and that I'm helpless, but that God helps the helpless. So I think God helps those people who are helpless and know it. He helps those people who are helpless and admit it. He helps those people who trust God enough to let him help them. So let me give you some ways that he helps us when we trust in him. When we trust in him, first of all, he helps us escape hell. He helps us escape hell. And this, of course, is the main reason that Jesus came to earth in the first place. He came so that we could escape hell and enter heaven. Look at these words, again written by Paul, about God rescuing us. They're the same words that Pastor Dale uh, read at uh, communion time, just from a different translation. Here's what it says. When we were utterly helpless, with no way of escape, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners who had no use for him. Even if we were good, we really wouldn't expect anyone to die for us, though, of course, that might be barely possible. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. If I understand the Bible correctly, and I think I do, there are only two ways that any of us can get to heaven. The first is very, very simple. Here it is. You obey from the moment you're born till the moment you die all 613 commandments of the Old Testament. And you do that perfectly. You never slip even once. You obey perfectly all 613 commandments from the minute you're born till the minute you die. Now, how many of you think you've already messed that one up? Go ahead. Okay. Uh, me too. Me too. And as a result, I'm helpless to earn my way to heaven. I'm completely helpless to get myself to heaven. I was on a rapid transit to hell with no way of escape. 
But even before I knew this, even before I understood this, Jesus came and provided the other way of salvation. He lived without sin from the moment that he was born until the moment that he died. He didn't slip up even once, and yet he died, which according to Scripture is the price we pay God because of our sin. And so God said he paid a price that he didn't owe, so if you will receive it, I will let Jesus' death pay the price of your sin. So I can escape hell because I've trusted Jesus' death to pay my price. And if you are here today and you're not sure that you've done that, you can have that promise too. I mean, if you want to claim his death as payment for your sin, we would love to talk to you. You can talk to me after the service today, or you can stop by the Next Steps uh, canopy, and they would be glad to talk to you so that you can be sure that you take advantage of this second path to heaven. But when I was helpless, when I was still sinning, when I thought that I had no use for Jesus, Jesus died on the cross to pay my price to help me and everyone else who trusts in him to escape hell. Second, when we trust in him, he helps us feel safe. He helps us feel safe. This world can be a pretty scary place. There are threats all around us, it seems. And God is not one of several sources of help for you. He is the only source of eternal safety. David wrote this in Psalm 121. I look to the hills. Where will I find help? It comes from the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. The Lord is your protector, and he won't go to sleep or let you stumble. The protector of Israel doesn't doze or ever get drowsy. I think sometimes we have used this verse or heard this verse differently. We read this, and I will look to the hills Where does my strength come from? And we kind of think that David is somewhere and he's looking at this mountain and it's making him think about God. It's making him think about how big God is and that that's where his help comes from. But I think David's saying something much different there. You see, whether he was a shepherd boy camping out watching sheep or whether he was a soldier or whether he was hiding from the king, David knew that the hills were full of danger. When he looked to the hills, they were full of danger. That's where enemies and thieves and wild animals would come from. They would come from the hills. And so David, when he looked towards the hills, he was looking for threats. And he said, where does my help come from? It comes from God. It comes from the God who never sleeps. God who wasn't sleeping but was watching over him. Can I ask you, what is it in your life that's keeping you awake? What is it that you're losing sleep over, that you're worrying about, that you're stressing about? What dangers are lurking in the hills that surround you? Now, can I just suggest, go ahead and trust him. Go ahead and trust God more. You don't need to stay up nights worrying about it. God never gets sleepy. He never snoozes. He's watching over you. You don't have to be afraid. A friend told me that 
he was leaving for a two-week business trip one time, and before he left, he and his wife had dinner together near the airport, and when their meal came, he just prayed, and uh, while he was praying, he said, Lord, please protect my wife and the kids while I'm gone. And when he finished praying, his wife smiled and said, well, thanks for the prayer, but who do you think protects us when you're home? You see, it's always the Lord protecting us. Whether you're afraid of monsters, whether you're afraid of financial collapse, or whether you're afraid of political changes in our world, or whether you're afraid of uh, physical harm, the Lord is our protector. The Lord is always watching. He's always awake. He helps us to feel safe. Lastly, he helps us please him. He helps us please him. God helps us, uh, helps the helpless escape hell, and he helps the helpless to feel safe, but he also helps us to please him. And when we really understand God's love for us, when we really understand everything that God has done for us, when we understand his blessings, we really want to please him. I mean, this is true of most relationships of love. I mean, I love my wife, and I'm grateful for her love for me, and I'm grateful for her influence in my life, and so I just really want to please her. I sleep every night in a house that's warmer than I want it to be because I want to please her. And I do all sorts of things to try to please her. I mean, I think carefully about the things that I say up here because she's okay with some things, but she's not okay with other things, and I want to please her. And she does things because she wants to please me also. I mean, that's part of being in a relationship. This week, she even seems to be squeezing the toothpaste from the bottom of the tube. Yay, Jill. It might be because the tube really is that empty, but, um, but she's doing it. So we do a hundred things because we want to please the people we love. We want to please the people who have influence in our life. And more than anything else, I want to please Jesus. More than I want to please my wife, more than I want to please my kids, more than I want to please my grandkids, more than I want to please you as your pastor, I want to please Jesus. My entire life is about pleasing him. I want to please him. And you know what I've discovered? I can't do it on my own. I fail at pleasing him when I do it on my own. That was the case for the early followers of Jesus also. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, we dare to say these good things about ourselves only because of our great trust in God through Christ that he will help us to be true to what we say and not because we think that we can do anything of lasting value by ourselves. Our only power and success comes from God. 
The Apostle Paul said, on my own, I can't do anything of lasting value for God. It is only by trusting him that I find power. It is only by trusting in him that I find success. And that's the key. When we trust God more, he helps us to please him. Do you want to please God in your life? Then trust him. Listen to what he wants you to do and obey him and trust him to help you do it. And whether it's stretching your comfort zone to serve him in some ministry of the church or whether it's to give financially according to what the Bible teaches or whether it's to invite a friend to church or to overcome a long-time habit, say, God, I want to please you, so I'm going to obey you in this area and I'm going to trust you to help me. And when you declare to him that you will commit yourself to him and that you will trust him, something amazing begins to happen. God begins to work in you to give you the strength to do what you said you were going to do. I love the verse from Philippians chapter 2. Here's what it says. Yes, it is God who is working in you. He helps you want to do what pleases him and he gives you the power to do it. Did you catch it? God not only helps you to please him by doing what he asks you to do, but he helps you want to do it. He makes you willing to do it. And for some of you, that's the prayer that you need to pray today. The prayer you need to pray is, Lord, I need to want to do what you want me to do. Because let's face it, most of us know something God wants us to do. We know clearly this is something God wants me to do. We just don't want to do it. Sometimes when I'm in that situation, I know what God wants me to do and I don't want to do it. I just pray this prayer. I say, Lord, I am not willing to do that. I'm just not willing to do that. But I am willing for you to make me willing. I'm not willing to do that, but I'm willing for you to make me willing. I'm guessing that as you figure out that you need God's help, as you admit that you're helpless and God helps the helpless people, that's a prayer some of you need to pray. And you know the area that I'm talking about because it jumped to your mind the minute we started talking this way. You know what God wants you to do. And you may just need to say today, God, I'm not willing. I'm not willing to be baptized. I'm not willing to give. I'm not willing to serve. I'm not willing to forgive that person. I'm not willing to end that relationship that's pulling me the wrong way. I'm not willing to deal with that habit that's pulling me down. I'm not willing. My God, I'm willing for you to make me willing. Why don't we pray right now?